Welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast. As a digital extension of the Ackerman Center, our goal is to teach the past so we can change the future. In doing so, we address issues related to the Holocaust, genocide, and human rights studies from diverse perspectives. On the night of November 9, 1938, an attack was carried out by Nazis in which Jewish businesses, synagogues, and other buildings were destroyed. This attack against the Jewish communities of Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland also saw the harassment, injury, and murder of countless innocent Jews. On this night, which has come to be known as the Night of Broken Glass, or Kristallnacht, it was not only windows that were smashed and destroyed, but so too was any hope Jews had for a safe continuation of their lives under the Nazi regime. Within a year, Germany would invade Poland and the nightmare of deportations and death would ensue. In this episode of the Ackerman Center podcast on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, we dis- will discuss the significance of this tragic event and its context within the greater attack on Jews that began long before and continued for several years after. Hi, Dr. Romer, and welcome. Let's begin by talking briefly about the event itself. Well, there's quite a bit just about the event itself, which um, makes it really compelling. So for starters, there is something that preceded it. In many ways, um, just two, three days prior to it, Germany had renounced the Polish Jews, in large numbers who had also resided in, in the German Reich, and dumped them across the border to Poland, which ended up with a large number, about 12,000, being in between German and, and Polish borders, in particular since Poland was also unwilling to take them in. All of this becomes more significant because there's a young man in Paris, Herschel Greenspan, whose parents and families caught in the middle, and who's outraged and takes it upon himself to procure not only a weapon, but then also to um, attack one of the Nazi diplomats, Ernst von Rath, on November 7th in 1938. He fires five shots at him and hits him at least a couple of times. So this is the pretext. So in lots of ways, we see Germany with this um, forceful um, relocating of, of Polish Jews engaging in something on a smaller scale, which is called population transfer, part and parcel of um, these kind of military conflicts, so in that respect, not unprecedented, but it yields here this slightly unusual form of retaliation. And then there's something really interesting that happens, and we can kind of wonder how significant that is. Ernst von Rath, you know, is in the hospital, is, is you know, been looked after, but he dies on the, on, on the wounds on November 9th. Now, every, every historian of Germany knows one thing, and that is everything that matters in German history happens to be happening on November 9th, which means on this day, Hitler and his closest friends were together to do what? Reminiscing and celebrating and commemorating the failed Putsch of 1923. So in 1923, he and his comrades had thought that they should overthrow the regional government of Bavaria to set in the domino effect that then, you know, what ultimately was designed to topple the German government. Obviously, that failed, resulted in his imprisonment. During that time, he ended up writing his book. 
But it cannot, you know, there's got to be an element from a perspective of the of how you would have thought about it that night, commemorating, uh, quote-unquote, often celebrated, but heroic, from his perspective, heroic effort that ultimately failed. And that overlapping now with the news of the death of Ernst von Rath. And it's at that night where he very quickly and abruptly leaves without making a formal um, announcement, but essentially instructs his entourage to organize a demonstration that would erupt, you know, without having been organized. But I do wonder whether there's something in that kind of mindset that propels, you know, this, you know, really, even within the context of the Nazi state, very significant increase of physical violence. If, you know, would it have happened the same way? It wouldn't have coincided with this other historical marker or not? I don't know. Um, but can we entirely disregard it? We've talked about before, I think, on the podcast, this idea of the culture of defeat and the the retaliation that ensues as a result of the culture of defeat. I think if you couple that with this, you know, assassination attempt and then the subsequent death of this German diplomat and that falling on the anniversary of this significant loss, even if it is being reminisced about and, you know, as and portrayed in this heroic sort of light, you know, it's still a loss. So the fact that these two things coincide at the same time, I think that that really does contribute to this idea of retaliation and, and a need to take action in a way that it avenges that that loss. I also think that it is significant, and, and in certain ways, when you know you talk about the culture of defeat, we could probably, you know, return again to things that we've done before. That in many ways, it is actually this kind of remembrance of past defeats that, on and off, also for the years to come, will radicalize the Third Reich even further in, in their war, um, in particular, also once. Um, they attacked the Soviet Union. So this kind of memory of past defeats as something that radicalizes them is, I think, a standard part of this the way in which the Third Reich operates because from their perspective, the radicalization is a way of justifying these past losses that they see as sacrifices. So in lots of ways, I think they're kind of intertwined in interesting ways. Let's talk a little bit about the name. Well, the name means the night of broken glass, and it's meant to symbolize the the pieces of window that are in the glass from the storefronts that shattered that night and, and all the Jewish businesses that are targeted. That's true. But in many ways, I mean, they are not just businesses and glass that, that crashes, but in lots of ways it ensues with quite a bit of physical violence um, that therefore um, there's always been a sense that this term is, is in many ways far too benign and so therefore often on and off people also just refer to it as a November program which is probably closer to what it actually was. So the word itself is, is a little bit benign of sorts. So what happens then on, on the day of Kristana? What I think is important to focus on is this idea of the tech meant to look spontaneous and meant to look as if it were not organized by the Nazi 
bureaucracy, but rather that it is an uprising or, or a lashing out of the of the German population against the Jews. Of course, we know it's an attack. Businesses are attacked. They're destroyed. People are attacked. They're harassed. They're meant to be publicly humiliated um, in front of their families, their friends, their communities. It's a general harassment. And in a lot of cases, there's uh, murder as well. But the important thing, I think, to focus on here is this this need for it to look like it's coming from below rather than from above. Very true. Um, so in that respect, you know, there is no like official orchestrating or it's supposed to not be visible, but it's really supposed to be this natural response of, of quote unquote, the German people, which results then in the destruction of over 1,400 synagogues and prayer rooms, cemeteries, 7,000 Jewish shops, 29 department stores, more than 30,000 Jewish men arrested and imprisoned, mainly in Dachau, Buchenwald, and Sachsenhausen. So it's very significant in that ways. It certainly sends shocking waves around the world. It's probably one of the most publicized internationally covered events in German history at that point. So newspapers around the world cover it. Uh, we can see it here in the Dallas Morning News being written up. So in that respect, it's highly, highly visible. And it really sends shockwaves through the Jewish community that also then even more desperately now afterwards will try its very best to find ways out of Nazi Germany and is trying to find safe places that are willing to take them, which at this point um, obviously has become harder and harder. There's a real ramping up of anti-Jewish measures in the wake of of the event as well. We have this pronouncement that Jews actually themselves were to blame for the pogrom. So that acts as a sort of punishment. So the insurance money that's supposed to be given to the Jewish businesses in order to fix them is actually confiscated by the German government. And they are made to to take the repairs on themselves to be financially responsible. But at the same time, they're also being stripped of their ability to sell to German people. They're being stripped of their ability if they're professionals, doctors, lawyers to practice. It really is a first step in this very radical restriction of rights in the Jewish community. Form of violence also that hadn't really occurred on, on that scale. And I think it is significant, therefore, within the context of the anti-Jewish measures and policies and forms of harassment and intimidations that had commenced ever since Hitler came to power. But I think it's also really significant for the others, the non-Jewish Germans, because in many ways the violence is very public, very visible, becomes um, a spectacle of sorts. Many of the photos that we have from that period show actually large numbers of, of people that are un, just unlooking. Um, the destruction of synagogues most often means that buildings in central locations are set on fire, which normally brings out the fire departments and the police. And so it is all the kind of normal responses in a normal civic society don't function any longer because everyone is aligned and one is willing to kind of see these structures go up in flame, even at a potential risk of neighboring houses, while everyone is, is either directly participating or vicariously participating or is at least somehow aware, which means, and this is really important for the, the kind of years to come, this will be the one event that all Germans remember. So much of what happens you know, afterwards will happen in so many different places where 
Uh, it happens in uneven ways. Some people will know the names of camps. Maybe some people, Germans, will only learn of the names of camps a little later. Some have better knowledge. But the one thing that every German will have you know, remembered is Kristallnacht and the destruction of these synagogues and the shops and all that. And it's a memory that, you know, on the larger scale of things, we often find maybe less significant because we know what's to come. But in many ways, it's one that one might almost say haunts the German population of sorts because it comes back to them in 1943. In 1943, many of the German cities are attacked by air uh, through the Allied Air Force, which results in massive destruction in German cities, including churches. And at this point, this kind of memory bubbles back up, and there's this kind of semi private public conversation amongst Germans who try to make sense of why it is that in this thousand-year Reich with their supreme leader, their churches are being bombed and destroyed. And they have a hard time bringing that together with their sense of, of you know, of military might, but also with their sense of, of their just battle. And therefore, the ways in which they seem to make sense out of that and talk in their, in their diaries and letters to each other is that it's divine punishment for what they've done in 1938. So this is, the in lots of ways, therefore, a very formidable memory. And then much later in the post-war period, it becomes the, the place that German cities take it upon themselves to remember because it's something that occurred in their cities. It's really painful for them to deal with in the immediate aftermath, 45, the Allies are coming, they're defeating Nazi Germans. How do you just explain to them these destroyed synagogues in the middle of the cities? So they're trying to clear them up, to hide them, to put them away. In the 80s, when Holocaust remembrance becomes more popular, they become like the touchstones for these memories. But they also, in a way, then create a more benign version. The Germans will more likely at times remember Kristallnacht, but not the Holocaust. So in that respect, it becomes also quite complicated. So in many ways, it is significant for what it is and when it occurs. You started us out, right, that it's kind of on the roadmap toward Wannsee and the ultimate Holocaust, but it also has a significance even beyond this all the way to today in terms of how we think about the Holocaust in a larger scale. It was a way of not the Nazi regime to really test the waters for the tolerance of the German population for the kind of violence that they had planned. Mm-hmm. Up until this point, it's really been done through legislation, but not through violent acts, at least not visibly violent acts on this scale. But the fact that the reaction that they get, like you said, there's this vicarious participation, there's outright participation, there's bystanders, there's a lot of reaction that I think makes this makes what comes next possible because it, there wasn't a large outcry against it. There wasn't pushback, even in the international community, though everyone was publicizing it, though it was a widely seen event, really not much was done about it. People wrote about it. They said, oh, oh how terrible. And then they kind of moved on. So I think that that's very significant in that there really wasn't any sort of response. So it was almost like a green light to go ahead with what's to come. And also, as you were talking about, about the visibility of it, what comes after in the concentration camps and the deportations, there are Germans 
you know, throughout the entire war that are unaware of what's going on. They're, the international community is largely unaware of what's going on. A lot of what takes place after this happens almost in the shadows. So this one visible event is obviously very significant because it acts, you know, like I said, as a, a testing of the waters, but it also acts as a message to the Jewish community. You know, and that's always been debated, how much this is, it, you know, in, in retrospect, very clearly it kind of maps on that we can kind of see, okay, 35, uh, as far as the legislation is concerned with the famous uh, Nuremberg laws as a height point, then it kind of slows down during the year of the Olympics in 1936, and then there's a renewed anti-Semitic politics and, and, and actions in, in its aftermath. Then comes the annexation of Austria, where everything that had happened from 33 to 38 in the German Reich happens now almost instantaneously in a three-month period. So you see that acceleration. However, I think you know whether this type of violence is still is 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 obviously an important stepping stone, but to see it already as as in indicating that there's going to be mass murder, I think it's it's difficult, I think, to kind of link it together that way. What I do think is that Jews have very clearly the sense that their lives are not safe any longer. And, and in, in very real terms, but I don't quite think that they're necessarily thinking about it on a kind of continental scale. This is very specific at this point to the experience of Jews in Germany and in Austria, in particular in Prague, where where this kind of lack of stability and security is now acutely felt. It definitely sends the message that life as it is cannot continue anymore. And that in and of itself is a pretty significant threat to a person's livelihood to know that you're no longer safe, you're no longer able to go to work, you're no longer able to go to school, you're no longer able to continue life as it had been before. I mean, that is a pretty big threat. No, no doubt. And I think also the incarceration of more than 30,000 Jewish men, men that are largely from a middle-class background who would have had no conflicts with police or anything in their lives, for them just to have to gone through this must have been truly traumatizing and also terrifying to, to, to them as well as to, to their extended families. So that thereafter, I think they, they were just... If they had remained somehow hopeful that under really difficult circumstances there would be some possibility to continue to live as Jews in Germany after Kristallnacht, I think it's largely clear that that's not going to be the case. We also are trying to to study this in other ways, um, and that is, you know, our digital studies team has uh, focused on Kristallnacht and um, has tried to kind of come to terms with some interesting studies. We focused on a number of issues that interested us, on the one side on Dachau, um, how the um, population of prisoners in Dachau is really radically at least changed for for this duration of time. Um, So we have an interesting new study coming out. We also tried to visualize really the occurrences of that violence on a bigger map to understand that it stretches actually beyond the German Reich, and, you know, it's covering a bigger part, really, also of the Central European map already, and we will be sharing some of those insights as we go forward as well. Sheds a lot of light on patterns of deportations and and age groups and things that we hadn't really thought to focus on, and it's very enlightening. It gives a lot of information about what exactly was the agenda of the Nazi regime at this particular point in time, 
with this attack and with the deportations that followed. Very true. And I think also from the perspective of individual camps, let's take Dachau, Dachau was the very first larger camp that was established, but it really had served from its beginning more as a form of imprisonment of political opponents. It is now becoming, even if for a short period of time, very clearly also a camp of large numbers of Jewish prisoners. And so this kind of transformation of what these camps are for, from being camps about political prisoners to really be in the places increasingly of incarceration of Jews, I think that's the other kind of really significant change that we're seeing here, that in many ways, for me on forward, imprisonment is not any longer limited to political opponents, but really is going to become the new reality also for many Jews, even before um, the establishment of the the Wannsee Conference and, and the Holocaust in, in the more narrow sense. The result of these deportations, particularly to Dachau, and, and then the release of many of these prisoners, because many of them don't actually stay longer than a few months, it actually results in this immigration crisis around the world. And we have, you know, a lot of people who have this clear idea now that they need to leave and they need to find a safer place to live. And that, of course, is going to result in a pushback on immigration in the United States, in countries in Europe as well. So there's there's a lot of repercussions from this single event. Looking back at this we got to recognize, and this, I think, is the other bigger learning point maybe that one can take from this, that once a society crosses a certain threshold, then it becomes capable of doing other things. And it carries a certain degree of guilt and, and with it, but it's also something that will radicalize it going forward. And so the idea that one may have had in, in 38 you know, on one of the next days that this could have been an extreme form of, of violence not to be repeated. I mean, that's the very thing that I think we have to kind of take from this, that once, you know, a threshold like that is crossed and, and all the normal kind of responses in a society have not occurred, then that's not going to uh, you know, be a good good kind of indicator of what is to come. And it's really hard to get roll this back again. So the breakdown of of structure, of stability, of of the kind of normal responses of police and uh, fire uh, you know, department and all that. Once all of that doesn't happen, kind of normal responses from neighbors, you know, seeing their their respective well-known people, friends from former, like in, in Dianitsa, so and they're not being the, the normal compassionate response. Well, once you see that, then you, you're, it's almost too late. It's a real indication of anything's possible at this point. Exactly. So the short of this is violence will breed more likely more violence. Thank you for listening. And if you're interested in finding out more about Kristallnacht, you can look it up on the Digital Studies website, which is now available through the Ackerman Center website. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is hosted by a team of dedicated faculty and research assistants at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies. You can learn more about our work and find upcoming events at our website, www.ackerman.utdallas.edu.